Welcome to the Woman's Own Book Club Guest Author of the Month. Zubeda Jaffa is a name you may know well. She's a journalist, she's an author, who over the years has been much awarded for her work writing both as an activist and as a careful observer. An earlier book, Our Generation, tells her own story. But Charlotte Manya Makayake is a name you may not know so well. Amazingly, because for a woman born in the 1870s, her life was an inspiration, and her work as an educationalist, activist, Christian and fighter for women's rights was groundbreaking. I'm Nancy Richards, and I spoke to Zubeda, and I asked her how she came to write about Charlotte in her book, Beauty of the Heart, and how she did this with just a little encouragement from Professor Jonathan Jansen. Nancy, we were walking on the campus of the University of the Free State, and when I say we, I mean Professor Jansen and I, and I saw this poster advertising a memorial lecture on uh, Mum Charlotte, on Charlotte McCreke. And then I asked him, what does he know about this woman and what is this about? Because I know very little. And then he said to me that there's an office on campus that's organising this lecture or helping to organise the lecture. And perhaps I would want to find information there. And when I did, I eventually came to the conclusion that, you know, the, the information was sparse or it wasn't that well organized and I I said to him you know when we met again it's not very clear exactly who this woman is and he seems to be different you know interpretations and versions etc and then uh, I said a lot of a lot of research will have to be done and then he said why don't you do it and it was very interesting because normally I get asked this. Uh, I mean, people ask me to write things and, and I always hesitate because, as you know, it's a big job and one can't just, just say yes to things and something like that, to writing a life. But strangely with this, I said yes immediately. Just really strange. I just said yes. And I couldn't believe that I just said yes. And there I went. You know, there it was. There I set off to dig and a story that I could not even have imagined myself. In 2012, I didn't have any clue or a little, very little sense of the story. You know, well, I mean, one is tempted to say perhaps the spirit of Charlotte visited upon you and said, do this, Zubeda, do this. I'm sure she did. And certainly towards the end of the book, certainly she would have been with you. But I think what's interesting is that you say you knew very little about her. And if you, as an activist and a journalist and a writer, knew little about Charlotte, one can only wonder that very few people and very few people still know much about her. And yet you've discovered a huge amount. Tell me where you even began, because there is some material written about her, not a great deal. Where did you even start? I started uh, with the PhD thesis that was written by Dr. Tuzama April a few years earlier. And that work was phenomenal because it actually was a collection of the, what she called the archival material on Charlotte Manya Matreke. And because she had already done that, she had listed you know, the archival material, it was a matter of me going into that and finding those documents and finding, you know, and reading those texts. And so 
she did, you know, it was almost like having a access to a library where there was categorization of it, of a lot of what was available on Charlotte Matreke. So I take my hat off to her because we, and we've worked closely, we still work closely together because it's really, it's about her initial work that I was able to, to make so much more progress in a short space of time. I did this in three years, you know, and so I think it would have been much harder if that wasn't there. Yes. So that was the academic aspect. And you quote Dr. April quite uh, extensively in the book. But there was there was the other the other work which you drew on quite extensively was the calling of Katie Makanya, which is, of course, the story of her sister, which was a very useful aspect. Oh, you know, there was much material in there as well. But as a journalist, you were keen, I think, to get to the soul of Charlotte, not just the academic aspect of her. And I think you did a whole lot more research from that point of view. Tell us a little bit about that. Yes, I realized quickly that the university required or considered thought that I would be doing an academic work. And I was very upfront about that. I said, I'm not an academic, even though I've, I, I do some academic work, not an academic. I'm a storyteller. I'm a journalist. And so if I'm required to write an academic text, I'm afraid I won't be able to do this. Not because I don't want to, because I can't do it, I suppose, if I force myself, but I'm not comfortable with that kind of language because I feel that I'm a communicator. And so when I communicate, people must understand, you know, um, young people must understand what I'm saying and not, it mustn't be this obfuscation of knowledge. And so I said, to Professor Jansen that if that's what they want, then I'm sorry, I can't do it. I was very definite about that. And I said, but what I could do, if they want me to do this, I will do the research and I will footnote, you know, and provide a bibliography, which is, I mean, important in an academic text. So the, the text of the book passed peer review and, and it got you know, it got the go-ahead. So it did earn the university uh, academic points. And, of course, that's what they're interested in. But I wasn't really interested in that because my career isn't there. So it didn't really matter to me, you know, but it was important for the university. Yes, and it, and it was important for the country and for important for so many of us to learn so much more about her. It's an extraordinary story. I mean, she's actually, dare I say it, a movie, if not a musical. In fact, uh, you know, thinking of a musical, there are so many aspects to Charlotte's diamond. She was a singer. She was an activist. She was an academic. She earned herself a degree. She was an educationalist. She was a Christian uh, champion of women's rights. I'm not sure which which ones of those we can start with, but maybe just because I mentioned musical, let's start with her singing career, which she sang for Queen Victoria. Talk us through a little bit about her singing. Yes, you know, it's quite extraordinary. Imagine in 1892, a South African choir went abroad to Britain and sang, and Charlotte was one of the, who could, could say, the leading elements, the leading element in that exercise. And But what was more, what was interesting for me is that there was a record, and I write about it in the book, that the British 
art critics, etc., were or British public was was not was surprised by the level of the level of singing, the yes, the art, the perfection of the art, and they couldn't believe that it was African. They believed it was, you know, it was um, where did this come from? But then some of the critics wrote, and I was able to track that those in the I think it was the was it the art review I forget exactly the the, the magazine but they said they explained that um, this is entirely African and it's as polished and as you know advanced as any European piece of music that I also found really fantastic I found amazing that that they drew that kind of attention in that time despite the prejudice and the prejudice was quite big because the manager of the choir had to or actually decided to rename the choir from being the Jubilee Choir, which was the name they chose, to the Kaffir Choir. And what is interesting for me was that Charlotte and the whole choir objected to this. So they told me that their level of consciousness was really high and they weren't going to just accept this. They eventually had to accept it because it wasn't changed, but they made a noise about it and said, no, they, this is not acceptable. But that was the level at which British society was at. They saw <laughs> this group of what they would call heathens coming to perform for them. And you know, it's quite extraordinary. Oh, it is extraordinary. And I mean, you spotlight so much of sort of social attitudes, both in the UK, but here in South Africa. It's very clear in your book what was going on in South Africa at the time. And just going back to the Queen Victoria episode, there's a r- one rather sort of shocking phrase where I think Queen Victoria brings her little grandchild along to watch the choir singing. And the little grandchild says, Granny, I don't like these darkies. And I thought, oh, my goodness. <laughs> But there are there are many such sort of little bits of uh, little bits of evidence of of social prejudices and attitudes. But it was Charlotte's visit, together with her sister Katie, and she were both part of the same choir. It was the visit to, to England which sort of triggered her travelling because soon after she went to America, where of course famously or symbolically she was the first black South African woman to earn herself a degree. She went to Wilberforce University which in itself must have been enormous. Just paint us a picture of Wilberforce University in those days. I think it was 1901 where she actually graduated. She actually graduated in 1901, but she was there since 1894, uh, 1895, and she comes into a space that is also really, really interesting because it's the first university for freed slaves in the United States. And so you can imagine the intellectual ferment, the the discussions that were going on there. And what is also very, very significant is that one of her teachers was W.E.B. Du Bois, who's considered to be one of the greatest pan-African intellectuals of the 20th century. So there she, she was, not only at this university, but at a time 
when there were all these discussions about the self-determination of the African people and the, the need to, in fact, Du Bois said that the tenth, one-tenth talented people of the U.S., of, of African-Americans, they need to lead, you know, so you need that one-tenth talented people to lead. And I think that has influenced a lot of what's happened, you know, here as well, all over, but here as well, you know, that people came together and, and led. So she was there for a good long time. She was there for four, four, five, six years. And in your book, you quote that she was never only one thing. She carried within herself a number of identities. The woman, the petty woman, the poor woman, the English woman, the African-American woman. So she had all these different attributes and all this different knowledge and all this different experience. She could so easily have stayed in the States, but she didn't. She chose to come back. What brought her back? What was her intention, would you say, coming back? Because she came back not with a bit of a love interest as well as all this, as well as a degree. She was always going to come back because as a young child, as a young woman, young person, she had had this vision and this dream of going abroad, getting educated and then coming back to teach the, the local people. She there was never, you know, confusion about that. And she was also part of then a group of young people from the Kimberley area, I would call them the Kimberley Circle, who kind of set out to do this, to get educated, to come back and set up schools. And the school that Charlotte was involved with still exists today at Everton. And that is quite a milestone and an amazing achievement. It's a community college now, and I think it's got so much potential. And it should be, you know, developed further and grown as a tribute to her. Yes, indeed, as a tribute to her, her vision and her her mission, her personal mission to educate her own people, having had education herself. Just going to break away from Charlotte's own journey to go back to her early days, because a woman like this doesn't come out of nowhere. Tell us a little bit about her parents, because it was her upbringing that grew this strong material? Her mom was literate. Uh, she had a missionary education and she had, you know, so she was literate. And the father wasn't. The father wasn't, but he eventually did become literate. And I think that had a, a major impact on her. She, even though she had to work as a domestic worker, as a young person to attend high school, but she had that possibility of going from Utenay to, to Port Elizabeth at the time and to live with a church family, do their domestic work, and then go to school. So there were a number of possibilities, you know. She took up the, the possibilities that were open to her. So I would say she, it was unusual that, that she had all those ingredients, a loving family, a kind a supportive family and an encouraging family director. Yes, yes, yeah. sort of like the yeast that grew her to sort of grow and develop like a, a wonderful loaf of bread. You know, there was Christianity in her background with her mum being a, a missionary or being missionary educated. And Charlotte herself moved into the AME, which is the African Methodist Episcopalian Church, of which she and her husband became guiding lights. 
tell us a little bit about that, about the AME, because it was it was very key. It was very important to everything that she did. When she when they landed in in the US and the the managers, the, the choir landed there, and, the, and after a while, the managers, their British managers, abandoned them as they did in Britain. So there was a story in the local paper, and the AME Church then uh, helped to send the choir back to South Africa. They raised the money and they sent the choir back to South Africa, but they kept Charlotte and four others back for South African men, and they offered them scholarships at Wilberforce University. And they really, in a way, almost adopted Charlotte. They took a liking to her, adopted Charlotte, and took her into their bosom, especially the Women's Might uh, Association. And she then was cosseted, you could say, by the Amy Church. And as a result, she shared this knowledge. She shared this knowledge about the church with her, with her sister, with her uncle, with her family back home, and encouraged them to join the church. And that was the beginning of what is a very big movement in South Africa and in Southern Africa uh, at the moment. And, you know, it wasn't all plain sailing. I mean, thinking about her trajectory with the ingredients that she had and the experience that she had, she grew into this multifaceted, multidimensional woman. But in your book, what is really interesting is to see how, to put her in context of how things were growing or not growing in South Africa. It, it's a very interesting comparison. Were you very conscious of that? I mean, once again, as an activist and journalist yourself, I'm sure writing a lot of this must have made your blood boil. Just putting her into context, the things that she had to, that she was up against, it, it's just extraordinary. I mean, she was, she was an activist. Yes, she, I mean, we, that's why, you know, today we're facing such difficulties in our country and in the world. But I like to kind of focus on, or it helps me to think about what they were facing at that stage. She comes back, she's got a degree. She, firstly, she couldn't study in her own country. That was impossible. And then she, so she was excluded from the universities. So she comes back home and she's ready to go. But then she comes right into the... Anglo-Boer War, you know, where you have situation of white on white violence and the British and the Afrikaners fighting it out and everybody being caught in that. You must remember that because we moan and complain about what, what we're going through, but there are moments in history where, where we were caught in, you know, the conflicts of other people. So there she was and she was stuck at the Cape. She couldn't go to, she couldn't leave until 1902. But at the same time, she set out to, you know, to go do on an education journey. I'd like to say it's a, it's a, she got the education train moving. Not just her, there was a group of them, but let's talk about her. And then comes, you know, 1910 and the Act of Union, which excludes her and most South Africans from the political system. Then comes 1930 and the whole scale, I would say, thievery of the land with people, 87% of the of people being excluded uh, or 87% of the land being taken from her people. You know, it's just, you can just go on and on. Then comes 
all the different laws, you know, she didn't live to see apartheid, but all the different laws that were imposed. And it scuppered, it, it kind of put a, a wedge into the, the train lines. It, it stopped that train or derailed the train in some cases. Uh, apartheid, of course, fully derailed it. But I feel we need to remember that, or we need to understand that, or think about what would have happened if there had been a natural progression of all these efforts. Where would we have been today? What would have happened if people had not been put into little boxes? This is the biggest challenge we have, and it's the legacy of apartheid, and it's so, so challenging. We can't seem to get out of it. We, we are stuck in these different racial boxes. That was not what they saw then, because Sal Plaki and people like people around her, they were talking about non-racialism and non-sexism, and they were talking about those things then already. And so it made me very, very excited and hopeful when I did the story, but it also made me sad when I thought what a lot of wasted effort, you know, energy. And, you know, in fact, you use that analogy in the book of the, of the rock on the train lines, on the train tracks. And I thought that was such a good one because it was exactly as it feels that that's what happened. And in a way, you know, there was a rock on Charlotte's own train tracks because all that she achieved, she also had a personal life that was marked by tragedy. She and her husband lost their little boy, I think about the age of four. It's not known why it's not known very much at all about that but she had to carry on and as a woman as a woman who was motivated and driven to improve the lives of her people it must have been very hard for her and you touch on that it's a very emotional part of it but one of the things that I'd just like to draw attention to you you found a lot of her speeches and there's one speech you mentioned that she was a domestic worker there's one wonderful speech where she criticizes Christianity and she says, you know, you go to the front door of the, of the missionaries looking for help and they say, go round to the kitchen. And it's such a powerful speech. I was thinking, you know, such a speech would carry such great weight today. You know, those, those sort of attitude, attitudes still apply. But I suppose, you know, talking of her as a woman, talking of her as an inspiration for the Artsgate Women's Humanity Arts Festival, one of the things about her was that she did pick up the baton. She picked up the flame for women. She was with the BWL. She was attributed to having been at the beginning of the ANC Women's League, that I'm not sure that that's quite right. Tell us the story, because it's a little bit contentious about what she was actually fighting for and with which group she was fighting. Well, she was involved in all the major women's organizations. She started the Bantu Women's League, which is considered to be the forerunner of the ANC Women's League, but she wasn't alive with the launch of the ANC Women's League. At the time of her death, she was the president of the, of the National uh, Association of National Association of African Women. If I, I'm not sure if I've got the right um, acronym. Title. Yeah. Uh, yes, but she, that's what she was. And she, so she was at the pinnacle of women's organization in her life. She, and she led, uh, she was very active in the opposition to the past laws for women. 
she wasn't the person who marched or led the first march in the Free State against past laws, although people keep on saying that, but I didn't find that. But she was central to opposing past laws for women and, and was very successful in lobbying against that. So she was, I would say, the, the foremost, one of the foremost women's leaders. And it's so, I'm so amazed that we just didn't know about her. We didn't know she was the only woman present at the launch of the ANC. We didn't know most of the things that it's in the book. I, I didn't know. Not that I say I should be knowing everything, but I'm educated. <laughs> so I should yeah. have this, you know, uh, information. And but it's it was just completely written out of our story, and so yeah. Now I'm very happy that it's on the record. For me, it's very very important. I don't really enjoy people just talking about Charlotte. I feel they've got to study a life. They've got to read and understand, because if they don't, then they have a very superficial understanding of who this woman is. You know. Yes. I think we tend to see her in, in 21st century terms, and I think one has to look at the backdrop against which she was, or what that she was up against. But, you know, I mentioned that she may have been with you when you said to Professor Jansen, you said yes. Um, and I feel sure she was with you throughout the journey. But specifically, I think you visited, you visited her home. You visited various key places. How was that? Was that... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that must have been quite emotional going to the places where she she was. It was very emotional, Nancy. You know, some people are not spiritual, so they think it's, uh, you know, uh, it's a bit odd for me to, to speak. Uh, you know, I don't generally kind of say this, but it was a kind of spiritual experience for me. It was, there were many moments when I felt she was with me and I used to get quite ooh, not sure am I just being nutty or what is it what's going on and the day when her photograph that's on the cover of the book came through the when I finally got that photograph when I saw these eyes looking directly at me you know for the first time mm. because the other photos were all older photos you know much older I was almost like I was floating. <laughs> I, I just didn't know what to do. I just couldn't believe this is a 21-year-old coming through, you know, a photo taken in a British um, studio and that I could see her face so clearly and it affected me very deeply, very, very deeply. And I feel very honoured to have had this opportunity to tell her story, and uh, I really do. I, I feel, I mean, I had no idea that it would kind of evolve like this, but I knew that I was I was happy to to put the story on the record, you know, to to write the story. When I thought even if it takes years for people to understand, but it's there. Yes, to, to put her back on the map, because the tragedy of it was that the poor woman actually died in poverty. She faded away, I can say, but you have brought her back into full focus. You know, just yeah. lastly, it's, this is a difficult question to answer simply, but she was inspirational then, whatever people, and, you know, your book is filled with the ways in which people were impressed by her then. But now, 
what you know at one point she's very critical about young women's behavior and I thought oh gosh you know um she's she's really quite now you know what do you think is the biggest lesson that we can learn from Charlotte as women right now there's so much Nancy but for me I've titled the book Beauty of the Heart and she it's the her words she speaks at in that uh, at that memorial of Nsikana where she talks about how women should conduct themselves and I know we're not always comfortable with this thing of you know saying this is you know women have to take this kind of responsibility but I think both men and women have to take the responsibility to do what she says and what she says is that we've got to conduct ourselves in a dignified way we've got to teach our children to to conduct themselves in a dignified way and what we have on display here and in the world is the most <laughs> dignified behavior that you can imagine you know that and it's not part of our culture it's not part of our tradition it's rude <laughs> i mean it borders on the rude so unless we put this matter on you know on the public agenda and we put have our discussion about it about beauty of the heart the importance of beauty of the heart the importance of of dignified conduct i think we are going to be showing the next generation a rather poor way of behaving i'm not suggesting that everybody's doing this but there is a almost an americanization of of behavior of the worst of american behavior that is becoming acceptable the way people speak to one another the way they children speak to parents it's all there uh, and it's i'm not sure how we're going to we can do reverse it but charlotte is putting that on the agenda and i i feel it's an important matter you're seconding it <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Clearly you have learned so much from Charlotte and Beauty of the Heart her words it's a beautiful title. There's another line she uses which is kill the self and I thought that was so interesting is that we need to learn to be less selfish and more kind. Zubeda it's been absolutely fabulous. Thank you very much. I think you have put together a remarkable book which hopefully will see many many years ahead and i think if anybody would like to get hold of it they can do it through your publishing company which is number 10 publishers and they'll find all the details on zubedajaffa.co.za on your website zubedajaffa.co.za zubedajaffa thank you so much very best of luck thank you absolute pleasure nancy